that. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you that you are El Elyon, the Most High God. Thank you that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that we as your disciples can accomplish anything down here on planet Earth. Thank you that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And Lord, you know we are all weak clay vessels. We pray, Lord, that we would be used mightily in, your pot, in the potter's hand, that we would be willing to be broken and um, used of you. We just ask now, Lord, that you would help us to focus on this difficult lesson. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted and help all of us to be willing to surrender to the call of discipleship. For we do pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Okay, I want to begin this lesson by reading the passage. And we will see as I read through it that it consists of a parable preface. That's in verses 25 to 27. Then two parables. We'll be looking at the parable of the tower builder and the parable of the king going to war. And then in the last two verses, 34 and 35, we will look at a parable similitude, which is about salt. So uh, and then then we're going to move on. We might have to move rather quickly because I do want to get to the last part of our lesson, which is on some of the characteristics of discipleship. We will be looking at the call to discipleship, the cross of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And then I want to go over to Judges chapter seven so that we can look at the characteristics of disciples as we look at Gideon and his men, the men who were selected to be in his army and defeat the enemy. So with uh, that, let's look at the scripture passage. Beginning at verse 25, it says, And there went great multitudes with him, with Jesus, of course. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he what? Cannot be my disciple. Starts out pretty Harsh and heavy, doesn't it? Verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, what? Cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, here we go into the parable of the tower builder, which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now we move into the parable of the king going to war. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and considereth or consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him, the enemy, that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, the other, the enemy, a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, what? He cannot be my disciple. Notice he says that three times in this passage. Now, here's the similitude. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. All right, I suppose by now, any of you who have been in this Bible study long enough know that the Bible is full of sevens. Sevens here, sevens there, sevens absolutely everywhere. <laughs> From the beginning of the book in Genesis, we have the creative week, which was how long? Seven days. And all the way to the end of the book in Revelation, we find that Revelation is full of sevens. Seven letters to seven churches. A seven-year tribulation period that consists of seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, sevens all over the place. Therefore, I don't think it's really going to surprise you when I tell you that if we put together everything that Jesus had to say about discipleship, there were seven statements, <laughs> seven statements, seven conditions of discipleship. Now, four of these are found in the verses I just read, the 11 verses of Luke chapter 14. And, um, and they tell us about the cost of discipleship. That's why this study is called counting the cost. Now, the other three conditions or 
I don't know what else we could call them, uh, characteristics maybe for... Actually, the first four that we're going to be looking at today are uh, about the cost of discipleship. The other three really are more about the fruit of discipleship, and we found those statements were made over in the Gospel of John. Now remember, this morning, everything we're going to be talking about this morning, although some of the things we talk about apply to salvation as well, but we're not, our subject this morning is not with regard to salvation. Salvation is open and free to all who will accept in Jesus' invitation. Remember in the parable of the Great Supper that we looked at last week? The invitation was for all, wasn't it? And, and all were invited, and, and the, the way to get in was just to simply accept the invitation. It was free. Jesus paid in full the price of our redemption. So for us, salvation is given freely. And he wants his house to be filled when it comes to the matter of salvation, of saving the lost. And that's what we saw also last week in, in Luke 14, 23, when he said that his house may be filled. He wants his house to be filled. On the other hand, discipleship is not free. Discipleship is uh, actually very costly. Yes, uh, there is a cost to having full fellowship with the Lord at his table. And although it is the Lord's perfect will, you know, he has his perfect will and his permissive will. Although it is his perfect will that all who come to him in salvation will also likewise become his disciples. Yet he knows that not all of his sheep are going to be willing to pay the price of discipleship. So he forewarns ahead of time of the cost that one must be willing to, to pay. The seven conditions for true discipleship are these. Now, the first four are found in our passage today. The first one is in verse 26. And essentially, we could say it's a willingness to uh, renounce family and even self if that is what the Lord calls on you to do. It, it's, it talks there about the importance of being disencumbered by ties that might limit our freedom of action to serve the Lord. And also, you know, freedom from our own selves. He not only says, if any man come to me and hate not his father or his mother, and we'll talk about the word hate in a minute, and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also. We must be disentangled from the ties of family restraints, those who would fight against our cause for Christ, our service for Christ. And we must be disentangled from our own self and our own desire to do what we want to do instead of what he would want us to do. So the first one is renunciation of family and self. Second one is, uh, goes, it kind of dovetails into the first one with regard to self-denial. It is self-denial. He says in verse 27, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So that's self-denial. Third one is being prepared. Person who's going to consider the call of discipleship and count the cost needs to be prepared. He needs or she needs to to consider everything that Jesus said about it and to, and to um, make sure he's ready to take that next step. Because you see, Jesus would rather have you say no to discipleship if you're only going to get halfway and turn back or a fourth of the way and turn back. And we'll see that in the two parables that he talks about, the, tower, the uh, parable of the tower builder and the king going to war. So the third step is preparedness. And then we talk about forsaking all in verse 33. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not, what? All that he hath. It takes all of a man, all that he has, all that he is, all that he ever hopes to be, to truly be a committed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are, that's the cost of discipleship. And then the fruit of discipleship is shown over in John chapter uh, 13. One of them is loving the brethren. He said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if what? Ye have love one to another. A true disciple will love the brother, the brotherhood of Christ. Another one, and we've talked about this one over in John chapter 8, verse 31, when he said, if ye continue in my what word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's an important one. Have you ever seen sheep that don't continue in the word? They wither up, they disappear, they get disinterested in the word of God. You know, it takes, it takes discipline, doesn't it, 
to be a disciple, just like we just had an evangelistic outreach revival all week long last week at our church. And um, there were some very accomplished musicians, young people that performed for us, that blessed us, that ministered to us, I really should say. Um, just accomplished musicians. One, one young fellow, boy, he looked like a kid to me, but he could play the violin. Uh, they could sing, they play these little flutes and penny whistles and cellos and all kinds of instrument. And it was just, it was a very worshipful experience. But that doesn't just happen, does it? That takes discipline. Because you know, there's a lot of lazy sheep. There's a lot of lazy sheep. There's a lot of sheep who aren't very disciplined and don't have a lot of, a lot of will. It takes a lot of work to be a disciple. It, you know, that violinist, he must have started out as just a little bitty guy. He wasn't too big now, but he was, you know, just as a tyke <laughs> playing the violin. Just like an athlete. We've talked about that before. It takes a lot to, to be good in sports. You know, you gotta get out there all the time and you gotta exercise and you gotta beat your body into submission, don't you? So, um, steadfastness in the word. That is a critical one. If you want to be his true disciple, you not, you got to be a person of the book. I wrote a poem. I can't think of what the title of it is. I dedicated it to Dr. Lehman Strauss, but it, essentially it says, I want to die with my boots on and a Bible in my hand. You know, I want to finish the course. Fight, I, fight, I hope I can say one day, I, I, I fought the good fight. I finished my course. You know, I've run the race and I haven't departed from the faith. Um, and I hope all of you want to be able to say that too. Some of you have been real examples to the rest of us who are younger. You're wonderful examples. You continue in the book, and thank you for that, and your steadfastness. Well, the other one is fruitfulness, which is what we're really talking about. He said, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. A true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be one who bears much fruit. That's in John 15, 8. All right, now into our passage, we find out in verse 25 that there were great multitudes. You see that? There were great multitudes of people who went with Jesus as he left the uh, Sabbath meal at the chief Pharisee's house that particular day when he had had the meal over at that man's house. And I would think that probably the man who had the dropsy and had been healed probably remember the Lord let him go and he, don't you know he probably went out and told everybody in the town wherever they were somewhere in Perea that he just spread word to everyone about what had happened to him and so the crowds swelled in number I think the Lord always had big crowds anyway as he went through the different provinces but uh, this would increase the crowds and so we're told that there was great multitudes of people following him and the Lord knew that even there in Perea where he had seen some great fruit Yet he also knew that many of the people were just following him out of curiosity and others were just following him because they heard that he could heal and they either wanted to be healed or they had somebody that they loved who, they, who needed to be healed. So he knew that. He knew some of the people were following from, for those different reasons. But he also knew that there were those in the crowd who wanted to hear him teach, that they wanted to hear the words of life that he had to share. And yet he also knew that there would be few in that great multitude who would be willing to accept his call to discipleship. They might be initially willing to accept the call to discipleship, but would they be willing if they knew what the cost was going to be, the real cost? They needed to consider the cost, and that's why he tells them ahead of time. He's already had disciples that turned and, and walked no more with him, hasn't he? Remember back in John chapter 6 when he um, spoke the Bread of Life sermon. He had had apparently many disciples, but when they heard those words, they said, these are too hard for us, and they turned and walked no more with him, John 6, 66. The, the uh, cross. Now remember, the Lord, you're going to be amazed as you look. We only have a couple more lessons, and we're going to be... Back in Jerusalem or in Bethany when uh, Lazarus, we won't have that until we come back in the, um, September, but we're only just a few weeks away from the Lord's return to the area of Jerusalem. So he's only maybe about a month or a month and a half at the most away from the cross. And so the cross and the desperate needs of the world both then and now had to have been very heavily on the Lord's mind. The enormous sacrifice 
and, and the cost that it was going to be not only for him, but he knew also for his disciples, his true followers, that the a sacrifice that it was going to take in order to reach the world that had to be consuming his thoughts which with each step that he took as he went closer and closer to the cross. Now, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He is going to make a, a long detour to get there, and I believe as he, you know, he's going to go north through Perea and Decapolis and then over and across, as we'll see when we get to Luke chapter 17. But he's on his way, and he knows that he needs to have completely dedicated um, disciples, those who will really be committed to the cause. He didn't have a plan B, did he? He was going to leave the work to 12 men, and one of them was a hypocrite. One of them was a tear. Now, what would have happened if they, if they quit? If they were disciples who said, oh, the price is too heavy and turned back. He had no other plan. Just like, you know what, with our generation, he doesn't have another plan. It's got to be you and I passing the baton on to the next generation. So they had to be completely dedicated to the cause. They could not place anything or anyone before their priority to him and to the cause of spreading the gospel. He needed the crowds, therefore, to know what it meant and what it cost to be a disciple. So he preached this little mini-sermon that I just read to you. And in preaching it, he knew, just like when he preached the Bread of Life sermon, that it was going to thin out the ranks. There were probably many who were then following him in this passage who thought that blessings and glory and honor would be their immediate reward. You know, they, they probably thought that uh, he would make sure that all who were following him would have continual health. After all, he could heal anybody. So follow Jesus and you'll never get sick. Every time you feel a little sore throat coming on, you know, just go to him and he'd take care of it right away. You'd never be sick. You'd never have any problems. Soon they'd all be wealthy when he set up his kingdom and then they would be honored and they would get those seats of uh, preeminence that so many people desired and they would be loved by everyone and they would never suffer any hardship. After all, if he truly was the Messiah, and many believed that he was, in Perea many did come to salvation. If he was the Messiah, then they would be on the winning side, right? So who isn't going to want to jump on the discipleship bandwagon? If they're on the win and their winning team, they had no idea at this point that a cross was awaiting him. He knew, and even though he had told his men several times already that he was going to suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers in Jerusalem and that he would die and li be lifted up, he had talked about a cross before. Yet nobody got it yet. Nobody, nobody still understood that, and especially these crowds. They had no idea. Those, therefore, who were considering discipleship needed to be forewarned that he's heading to a cross, and the disciple is not greater than his master, is he? Disciple's not greater than his master, so, so this could be what possibly awaited them as well. Well, we know it did. Not always a cross, but persecution, suffering, uh, trials. You know, they needed to be mentally and spiritually prepared for the spiritual battle ahead. Because the persecution and the trials uh, were coming. And they shouldn't begin what they couldn't end. That's what a lot of this is about today. Not to begin something that you can't end. You've got to consider the cost first. So he told them that a true disciple must put him first. Even before, oh this is hard, even before his family. Those closest to us. And before self, yes, Catherine. Even before ourselves. You know, the, Christ the main, the vital thing about Christianity is always dying to self, isn't it? Isn't it an ever-present task? I fight it every, every day. Every day. I think, oh, that was all about self. Oh, there I did it again. <laughs> you know, it's hard to die to self, but it's got to be a continual process. But he said, if any man come to me and hate not, whoo! Lord, those are strong words. Hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, I didn't make those words. If I was going to do it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in there. <laughs> but, so this is not me speaking. This is the word of God. The, now, the Greek words, hate not, they sound really, really harsh there. But, you know, um, <laughs> one of the principles of 
biblical hermeneutics, and that's the interpretation of scripture. How do we interpret scripture? Um, one of the principles is that scripture, if you truly believe that the Bible is God's word, you know he's not going to contradict himself. Scripture never contradicts scripture. And therefore, we know that his message here, the Lord's message, would not contradict some exhortations that he has given or God has given elsewhere in the scripture, such as the fifth commandment where it says, honor your mother and your father. It would be a little hard to honor your mother and your father if you hate your mother and father, right? And what about where he says in Ephesians 5.25 that husbands are to love their wives, he wouldn't contradict by saying you need to hate your wife. Um, or when he says, First uh, John 2, 11, he who hates his brother is in darkness. Or what about in the Sermon on the Mount when he told us that we are even to love our enemies? We're even to love our enemies. So, well, of course, we love our families. So what does he mean here? Well, the words hate not mean that all natural loves are to be subordinate to our love for him. Even the natural love that we have for ourselves. All are to be subordinate to him. So that it looks like comparing our love for him to our love for our family, there's such a difference that it almost looks like hatred toward our family. Um, hate not does not mean that the disciple is to, to hate his family. Obviously, we know that. You're not to hate your family. But you are to show preference to the Lord above even family. He is to always have the preeminence in our lives before family, before selves. If a person's family opposes uh, an individual's decision to follow Christ as his disciple, then who must the person obey? The family or the Lord? The Lord, even if it means losing the family, even if they disown you. Now, you shouldn't disown them, but if they choose to disown you, and people have had to pay that cost, haven't they? It's a high price to pay. But you have to be willing to forsake anyone who will put, you know, make their claims on you over and above the Lord's claims. He comes before companionship. He comes before comfort. He comes before the pleasure of the family and the home. And this, this doesn't mean, of course, that we're to be offensive to our families or that we're tr to um, become a stumbling block to them. You're not supposed to do what I initially did, you know, and go to your family members and grab them by the throat and say, <laughs> you got to accept Jesus or you're going to go to hell. That's not exactly the right way to go about it. You know, if, if you're <laughs> obtrusive like that, you might, you might chase your family from you, not, you know, because of your godliness, but because of your offensiveness. So we don't want to become a stumbling block to them. And we don't want to, you know, argue with them and quarrel with those in our families who do not agree with our faith. But, uh, but this does mean that their claims to us and their convictions, when they come into conflict with our service for Christ, we must choose to please him first and foremost, even over those who are the closest to us. And I know it's hard sometimes if you have an unsaved husband. It's hard. Nobody said it's easy. The Lord didn't say it was easy. But there are ways you can do it. I was married to an unsaved man for five and a half years. And, you you know, it is possible to put Christ first. And hopefully the husband will see you doing that and be will be influenced by the light that comes out of you. But um, anyway, it, it's, a, it's too steep a price for many people. Many people are not willing. And that's good. If they're not willing to pay this price, then they shouldn't get on the discipleship roadway. The pathway to discipleship only a minority really have been willing to pay the price in this category uh, because it is a most difficult demand but it is the demand that christ makes you know he doesn't uh, he doesn't pull any punches when he tells us the truth and sometimes you know i know children little children are our heart you know it's very time consuming when you have little children I know because we have three grand, little grandchildren and after they've been with me for a while, I'm just absolutely withered away. <laughs> so glad I had my children when I was young. Wasn't that wise of me? <laughs> 
but they, they're very time consuming but you still need to center on Christ even though you know 24 7 you're taking care of children everything you do with those children and for those ch children should be Christ-centered you are raising those children they don't really belong to you anyway do they they belong to the Lord but you are to raise them to be future disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ and there are ways that you can still put Christ first even when you have little children I know because I did it I had five pre I mean five preschoolers oh my goodness it was bad enough as it was with three I had <laughs> I had three preschoolers and I used to pack them up in the car and drive 75 miles to a Bible study in Fayetteville because it was the only ladies Bible study I knew about at the time 75 miles one way just to go to the Bible study and uh, then they asked if I would be a group leader like some of you are and that entailed two days because Monday was training day and then Tuesday was the actual Bible study day so I was making a 300 mile that's when the gas was cheaper <laughs> 300 miles a week just to get fed God's Word because I was just you know hungry for God's Word it's possible it's also I have told you this before but you you know you um, you can listen to cassette tapes you have to take the children here and there and you can put in Bible cassette tapes and be learning while you're in the, the stage when you have little children redeem your time wisely after they go to bed you can you can read good godly material you read your Bible in front of them so they see the example when I ironed and I know nobody irons anymore how many it was only one lady yesterday who said she irons oh we got a lot more ladies that iron here what's wrong with those more county ladies they just go around with the wrinkled look <laughs> but I used to spend a lot of time ironing or they buy permanent press right um, my husband was uh, in the Navy and I was always ironing uniforms it seems like and anyway I did a lot of time, I spent a lot of time at the ironing board so I as the, I was ironing I had Bible tapes you know and, and cassettes that we didn't have CDs and I'd be listening and, and soaking it up you need to put the Lord first if you have um, if you have children who have strayed from the Lord you know what you're responsible before the Lord you keep on keeping on you're going to be more of a benefit for your family members who are either not saved or who are not sold out for the Lord you're going to be more of a benefit for them if you are committed steadfast focused disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ than if you're not you're going to have more of an opportunity to to be a testimony and a witness to them than if you're not if you let them pull you down and does Jesus know about family problems I know when I was a young Christian I thought well Jesus can't identify at all with what this is like to be married to this man because because he was never married so he doesn't know and then and then I had the stupidity to think well he doesn't know what it's like to have children <laughs> oh where was my mind guess who he's married to not only me but every one of you guys <laughs> and everybody in the church is his bride he's got all of our little petty problems and idiosyncrasies to deal with of course he knows what it's like to be married and of course he knows what it's like to have children oh think of the children problems he has faced nothing in comparison to my little things oh, anyway I know better now uh, there's nothing he, he hasn't gone before us and set the example and experience a person who loves anything or anyone more than they love him will not be constant they will not be steadfast they will not be reliable they will not be dependable they will not be persevering in their duties and in their responsibilities they'll quit along the way and Jesus doesn't want those kind of people because they present a poor witness to the world don't they quitters quitters present not only a bad witness to the world but they're a bad reflection on him and over the course of the uh, and by the way remember when he sent his men out on uh, their first mission trip alone without him and he gave them the ordination sermon you know what he warned them about you know what he said he said and a man's foes shall be they of his own household how often that is did the Lord understand about that problem too didn't his own family his brothers and sisters come to get him they were trying to get him to quit his work if they had had their way they would have taken him back to Nazareth and, and stuck him in a little carpenter shop and you know kept him there the rest of his life because they thought he was out of his treetop they thought he'd lost it 
and, and they would have caused him to, to quit. Over the, the course of the church age, experience has demonstrated how often the greatest enemies of not only a man's soul, but also a Christian's devotion to Christ, have been those of his own household. How many people do you think have not entered into the narrow gate that leads to life because of family? Think of becoming a Christian if you're raised in, in Islam or if you're raised in a Jewish home or sometimes even um, like me, Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic or even sometimes Protestant. If you go from one Protestant denomination to another, your family may not understand. We've always been Methodoni Presbyterianists. Episcopalian. My husband has a way where he can put them all together in one long word and I can't do it. But, uh, you know, sometimes we even have to put church families aside. Have you ever had to do that? Oh, it was really hard. The, the church my husband was raised in, we, had, we left and, and, and it was hard because that was his family church. And his mother never did understand. Never did understand. Uh, I, well, anyway, I was wondering how many have, um, have not only been kept from salvation but from the road to dis of discipleship because of family i wonder how many have not gone to the mission field because of family or how many have returned from the mission field because of family family members are often the greatest hin greatest hindrances to a person's total commitment to christ but the genuine disciple will count the cost and say yes i'm willing to do that i will obey christ if and when it comes to um to, to even giving up those who are the dearest to me. And it's very painful, and I know what I'm talking about here. It is very, very painful. Now, some of you have never experienced this, and you are blessed. Well, we all have a cross to bear in one area or another. Now, I had to give up family. I didn't give them up. They sort of, you know, rejected me. But um, in other areas, you know, some of you may be called on to give up financial something or other and live in poverty all your life or you know we all have different areas where the lord asks asks us are you willing to do this and, we, and whatever area it is we need to be saying willing to say yes no matter how hard the cost might be it's heavy but those who have had to sacrifice in this area or in other areas we'll talk about need to remember that the best testimony we can have before our lost and even our saved but not sold out family members is to show them that we are fully dedicated we do believe what we say we walk the talk that we're committed that we're obedient that we're willing to be sacrificial and steadfast and gentle toward them don't do what i do did be gentle toward them yet without compromising the truth. One of the greatest compliments I ever got from my father was when he said to my mother, after I'd witnessed to him for two hours, he said to my mother, she really is genuine. She really does believe what she's saying. And that, even though, as far as I know, he did not get saved before he died, um, that was, at least he knew, I really genuinely did believe, and I do. But to put family before Christ, or even to put children, little precious children, and we can't help but love them so much, but to put them, or to put grandchildren, oh, now you're really talking. <laughs> to put them, anything, anyone before Christ is to really make that person or that child an idol, isn't it? Because anything that comes between us and God is an idol. It's a form of idolatry. <coughs> my daughter, after hearing this message yesterday, said to me, I've got to go home and take care of my little idol. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in verse 27, in talking about bearing one's cross in order to follow Jesus in true discipleship, the Lord was not asking people, of course, to literally be willing to, well, he was, to literally be willing to die on a cross, but he was not saying that they would have to die on a cross in order to be his disciple, but that they'd be willing to even give up their life if asked to. You know the verse that Paul said in Philippians 3.10, where he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I mean, I can, I can do that. Oh, yes, that I may know him, really know him. And the power of his resurrection. Wouldn't you like that kind of power in your life? Yeah, we all want the power of his resurrection in our life. But what's the next part? And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Count the cost. Are we willing to even 
want to know him so much that we're willing to suffer as he suffered, be in fellowship with his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If ever a man died to self, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't have to go to the cross, didn't have to suffer the shame and the rejection and the pain and the agony and everything he suffered for us, but he totally died to self. And if we're wanting to be his disciple, we have to be willing to have that kind of death to self. The mention of a cross in verse 27 really is a prediction. He knew where he was headed. He knew there was a cross awaiting him. That's really a prophecy there of his own upcoming crucifixion. Now, the people who he was talking to knew well about crucifixion. They, they had, it's been estimated that there were some 30,000 who had been crucified just during the Lord's earthly life. 30,000. So they said that sometimes you'd be walking along the highways and there would be people hanging on crosses, either still in the process of dying or hanging there after they, they died. A lot, I mean, anybody back in that day knew what crucifixion was all about, and they understood that the one who was carrying his cross, as he says, whosoever doth not bear his cross, because they would, the one going to crucifixion had to carry the cross beam on their back to the place where they would be crucified. And uh, so they knew that the one who's carrying his cross was on his own death walk. The individual who will not be willing to walk a life of death to self and, and uh, be willing to suffer the shame and the pain and the rejection and even potential physical death, many have had to die for their faith over the years and many are dying for their faith today. And the individual who wants things his way and wants to make claims to his rights. How many sheep aren't willing to be disciples because they say, I don't want to give up my time. You're kidding. One hour on Sunday morning is, that's enough time for God. I, I am not going to give up. I got to have a life. You know, they're not willing to give up their, their resources, their money, their time, their effort, their energies, their gifts, their talents for the Lord. They're not willing. They're just not willing to be one of his disciples. But you know what? That which costs nothing is worth nothing. That which costs nothing is worth nothing. Now, salvation for you and I is worth a whole lot, and it's totally free, but there was a cost for it, a big cost, and, and Jesus paid that cost for us. But in our lives, you, you, don't, you just you know, don't get anything that's worth anything at, um, for, you know, by paying nothing for it. Jesus knew that the cross was before him, and he was not going to disillusion anyone about what it would take to, um, to follow him. Selfish, me-centered plans and priorities would have to be, uh, me-centered plans would have to go out the window, okay? And, and priorities, you know, if you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't your priorities have to do some shuffling around? For one thing, you have to set aside Tuesday morning, maybe, for, for Bible study. and You just have to make a readjustment of the priorities in life. There's a lot of things that we busy ourselves with that we don't need to be busying ourselves with. They're just vanity. They're just emptiness. They, they don't last eternally. We need to be, what? Laying up treasures in heaven. Redeeming our time wisely because the days are evil. They're short. They're getting shorter. Not going to be around. We've got to get busy. Busy, busy, busy. Busy little beavers working for the Lord. <laughs> You know the um, verse that Paul gave in Romans 12, 1, where he said, I beseech ye therefore, brethren. Who is he speaking to? Believers. This is about discipleship. He's going to say, I beseech ye therefore, brethren. Not losterin. Brethren. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's not even asking us something... That's above and beyond. It's just reasonable service. All he did for us, all he's going to give us in eternity, it's just our reasonable service to give ourselves, to put ourselves on the altar and be a living sacrifice for him. Well, Christ followed his parable message. Oh, I can't believe it's already 15 now. With, um, with two parables, he gave us the, and these illustrate or amplify what he had just said. The parable of the tower builder and the parable of the king going to war. One is, interestingly, an offensive work, building a tower, and the other is a defensive work, going against the enemy, the king going against the other king. G. Campbell Morgan said that one is a constructive work. Now, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, guess what he's in the building of? What is he building? 
he's building his church. That's a constructive work, isn't it? To build the Lord's church, help him build the church. We're living stones. You know, he's the foundation and the apostles were the part of the foundation and then all the saints of the ages have built up the church. So one is a constructive work. The other is a destructive work because also we, when we are disciples, we're in warfare, aren't we? Who's the enemy? Satan and his evil foes. So we're in a spiritual battle. We're here to build and we're here to battle. Just like Jesus set the example. He is uh, the tower builder. He's the one building his church. And he's the king who came down here to go to war against an enemy much greater than him. So really, again, he sets the example for us. Let's look, first of all, at the parable of the, uh, the tower builder. And that's in, um, let's see, verses 28 to 30. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. <clears throat> a tower was, of course, a place for observation and or defense. Towers were built to guard against enemies so that the one who was up in the tower could see the enemy approaching and give warning to his people. Therefore, a tower, which it was important, a tower needed to be strong and it needed to be rightly constructed so that it would not fall or be easily taken by the enemy. Remember just a few chapters ago, in chapter 13 of Luke, we talked about the Tower of Siloam that was in the building process and it collapsed. Whoever went about building that tower didn't plan ahead. The tower was weak in some area and it fell. We've heard of things falling, cranes falling and killing people. Well, that tower fell and it killed 18 Jerusalemites. So a tower needed to be built right and it needed to be um, made of the right kind of materials, you know, strong steel or whatever they made it of back then. The height of the tower and the strength of the tower meant considerable cost. And so it is true regarding discipleship for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an important task to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it is? It's the highest calling that there is in, in the world. The highest calling of all is to be a disciple of the Son of God. That's it. It doesn't get any higher than that. And in any great building project, it behooves the builder to first sit down before he begins construction and consider the cost. You know, nobody but a foolish contractor is going to, you know, well, I'm a builder, so I'm going to build. And he just gets out there with a hammer and nail and a piece of wood and starts to build. Nobody but an unwise contractor is going to build a great tower without first making sure that he had all the money, all the manpower, and all the materials that he needed to complete the project. You know, if a builder just starts to build without any consideration of the cost, he might find out that after he laid the foundation that he had insufficient means to complete the project. And an incomplete project brings with it mockery and reproach. You know, people who will pass by an incomplete structure that got no higher than its foundation are going to say, well, I wonder what happened in that situation. Somebody messed up. Somebody goofed up. Right? And it's going to be an object of, of mockery to the world. Now, Satan is a roaring lion seeking, you know, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. One of his uh, favorite activities, something that really gives him an adrenaline rush, is to cause a Christian to stumble and fall and not get up, to quit somewhere along the way and just say, I can't do it, it's too high a price, I'm not willing to be a disciple. Now I'm not talking about salvation because we cannot lose our salvation, but we can quit on the, the walkway of discipleship. And um, one quote from a book says, an unfinished life is a more tragic spectacle than a cement foundation without a building. You know, there were some, as we talked about those disciples who turned and walked away from Jesus in John chapter 6, there was a man named Demas who started out as a disciple with Paul. And yet what did Paul say? Demas hath forsaken me, loving the pleasures of this world, loving this world more. He was a disciple. I believe he was probably saved, but he turned back. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character named Pliable. Does the same thing. Starts on the walk, you know, and, and he's so pliable. He goes this way and goes that way, and he just doesn't have the willpower. Didn't have what it takes to be a committed disciple, so he turns back. What if, as I said before, what if Peter quit? What if Paul quit? Where would we be? What if he said, oh, I can't take this anymore? Do you know how many times I've been beaten 
39 lashes. Do you know how many times I've suffered persecution? Do you know how many times I've been thrown out of the synagogue? I was even murdered once and shipwrecks. Forget it. I have had it. This is too much. Thrown in prison. What if he had quit? We wouldn't have most of our New Testament. Where would we be today if he quit? You see, the Lord Jesus is not constrained to say by many or few, is he? He is like the Marines. You know, he wants just few good men. <laughs> he is more interested in quality than he is in quantity. And that's why I don't worry. I think right here in this room, I've got some of the cream of the crop looking at me right now. And I praise the Lord for you. Quality, quality people. Every face I'm looking at here, you're, you've proven most of you, some of you I don't know, maybe you're new, but you've proven to me that you're, yes, you're committed to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the world and, and, and Satan loves it when they see a Christian fail to complete the work they have started. And, um, and they love to ridicule. You know what they did as they passed by the foot of the cross and Jesus was on it? What did they do? They ridiculed, they mocked, because they thought he didn't finish his work. <laughs> Even though he said, Te telestai, it is finished. They, didn't, they looked at him and said, There's another failure. Yeah, thought he was the Messiah. <laughs> if he was the Messiah, why can't he get himself down off that cross? He could save others, can't save himself. He was a deceived person. Or else he was an outright liar. And they mocked him because they thought his work wasn't finished. Oh, but it was. And he proved it to them with the empty tomb, didn't he? He, he will finish his work. He will finish his work. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the building of his church. But So now, the Lord is not trying to drive anybody away from salvation. You know that. I hope you know that. Because he, he told us to strive to enter in at the narrow gate that leads to forgiveness and grace. But he does warn against jumping on, without considering the cost, jumping on the discipleship band wagon. Because he doesn't want his work, his building project of building the church, cluttered with failures. You know, those who have not first counted the cross. Cross. Cost. <laughs> The cross cost. <laughs> Those who aren't willing to give up creature comforts. Remember that one would-be disciple who said, Oh, Lord, I'll follow you whithersoever thou goest. And he said, Okay, think about this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, uh, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Are you willing to give up your uh, memory foam comfort pillow, your creature comforts? And another one said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me um, go bury my dad. <laughs> Dad's not dead yet. He didn't want to give up his future inheritance. Another one said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go bid my family first. He said, anyone putting his hand to the plow and turning back is not fit to be my disciple, not fit for the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't want those who are not going to follow through. A Christian's failures always reflect on him. Don't we see that when we see men of God fall, men of women? You know, nobody is an island unto themselves. We all have a ripple effect. If we fall, if we quit... Those around us, those watching, and there are always people who are going to be influenced. You know, young believers, it's going to be a discouragement to them. So it's going to, it's going to, damage, it's going to damage the kingdom work. All right, I've got to move on really fast. The parable of the king going to war, let's look at um, verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Just as the wise thing for a con uh, contractor to do is to first consider his cost before he jumps into a building project. Similarly, a king who faces overwhelming odds. Now, this king only had 10,000 men, but his enemy had how many? 20,000. So a king should, just because he desires to go into battle, doesn't mean he should rush into battle without first meeting with his, uh, his advisors and considering, you know, counting his troops, sending spies over to count how many the enemy has. Um, and, you know, if they're overwhelming like it was here, then he needs to consider, are my warriors more seasoned? 
Are they more battle-scarred? Maybe uh, my, each one of my soldiers is equal to two of theirs. Maybe they haven't been properly trained, and mine are much better soldiers. Maybe they don't have the best equipment. My guys have better swords, or they have better armor. You know, he's got to consider all these things. And if he um, comes to the point where he decides that he can't win the battle, then what should he do? He should send an ambassador over to the enemy and sit down at the peace table and make a, a peace agreement. If, if, you know, they're too fearful or they're not focused or whatever, the reason might be. Now, if he has the Lord on his side, <laughs> that makes all the difference in the world. He can have a little tiny army like Gideon and still win the battle. So it's our responsibility to wisely calculate the power of our resources. You know, maybe we're not trained well enough yet to get on the discipleship road. You look at the men of God. I mean, Moses had to spend 40 years in training on the backside of a desert, didn't he? David spent all those years out in the, in the uh, fields with his sheep. Paul spent three years in the desert. You know, there's a, a time where you need to be trained. So that then you're properly ready to begin the work of building your life and helping the Lord build his church and edifying the saints and, and getting into the battle. If you're not prepared for the fiery darts of the enemy... Don't get in the battle yet until you are, until you are ready. You need to spend time in training. So a person needs to consider their resources. They need to consider the power of the enemy and um, shouldn't proceed until they are ready. You see, it's not enough simply to desire to be a disciple. We must first know what is involved. And as I said, it's a high cost to pay. Faketh, you know, he asks us that we be willing to forsake all, all, he put that word in there, verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Again, I don't think I would have put that in there. I'd say, oh Lord, can I keep something? No, all. So the word forsaketh is the key to this whole passage. Jesus says that it costs absolutely everything. Everything you are, everything you have, everything you hope to be. And there are some, you know there are people out in the world who think that Christianity is for weaklings. Boy, that is far from the truth. They think that mm -mm, it's our crutch. You know, they think that we have to cling to our Christianity because we're bitter. But um, that's not the way the Lord paints the picture, does he? Not at all. Christi Christianity, discipleship, Christianity, man. You got to be disciplined. You got to be committed. You got to be focused. You got to not be fearful of the enemy. Uh, you got to get yourself up when you get weary and well-doing. Terry can testify. I get weary and well-doing every single Tuesday afternoon. I quit. See, can't do it anymore. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too... But you know what? The Lord gives you the strength and you get right back up. You know why? Because our focus needs to be where? On eternity. <laughs> um, I was, let me get back to Satan. Satan. Satan always just talks about the benefits of sin. He doesn't tell people the whole picture about the burdens that come with it. But, but Jesus does. He tells us not only about the burdens, but he you know, tells us about the blessings. And there are blessings to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the benefit is of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? The benefit is being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it right there. To be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said, is the highest calling that there is in life. And you know what else is a benefit? Another thing that is a benefit is that one day we know, and by the way, only a disciple can truly say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, only a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ on his or her deathbed will have no regrets. Well, if they have any regrets, I tell you what it'll be, that they didn't give more to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're a true committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, on your deathbed, you will not regret that. I promise you, you will not regret it. And then in eternity future, we will all look back and see that following Christ and the sacrifices we had to make down here, the time and the energy that we had to give for him down here is like nothing. In comparison, it will be worth it all. Wish I could sing. I'd sing that song. We, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And that is a promise. It will.
everything you've ever given for him will be worth it. All right, now um, he talks about salt. Salt um, is good, and we're to, we are the salt of the earth, and we're not to lose our fla- flavor. That would be like starting a building project and quitting, or go, being a king who goes to war and doesn't consider the cost, and you know, you get into the war and find out you don't have what it takes, and you lose the war. Salt that loses its flavor is no good to this world. This world needs not only our purifying effect, but our preservative effect. What is keeping this world from total chaos and confusion and evil just you know what this world is going to be like when the salt is removed when we're removed at the rapture just read revelation 6 through 19 all hell breaks loose without the preservative effect of salt of this earth but if salt loses its savor it's good for nothing but to be thrown on the roadside and men's feet to trample it back down into the ground that's what he's saying there i want to move on to judges chapter 7 would you move real quickly to judges chapter 7 here we have the story of Gideon and uh, his army. And in this, we really see the kind of characteristics of disciples that the Lord is looking for. He is looking for quality, not quantity, because he is not restrained to save by many or by few. And he gets more of the glory when a victory is won just by a few, doesn't he? When the enemy, the enemy is overwhelming in number, and yet he wins the victory. And that's what happened in, in the situation with Gideon. Now, Gideon was one of the appointed judges of Israel. And he was faced with a dilemma. His people were in bondage, and their enemies, who were both the Midianites and the Amalekites, vicious, awful, ruthless, overpowering people, um, were oppressing them. And his job, he was told by God that he was to deliver Israel from this aggression it was an awesome task and yet of course he was willing to do it and he called forth the men of israel to fight he had 32,000 men who came forth but the number was still very insignificant compared to the number of the amalekites and the midianites if you look at verse 12 it says that the uh, let me get over there judges no not judges yeah judges Seven. Look at verse 12. It says that the enemy was like grasshoppers for multitude. It would be like looking out of a, at a field that was just covered with grasshoppers. Or, and they, it says that they were like the sand by the seaside for multitude. And they had camels without number. So you can just imagine what went through Gideon's mind. You know, he has this little puny army of 32,000 men compared to hundreds of thousands in the, of the enemy. And God tells him, you still have too many soldiers, Gideon. (laughs) So I just can't, you know, if I was Gideon, I'd think I'd say, what in the world are you talking about, Lord? You can't be serious. But he was serious. And he was going to thin out the ranks. He only wanted disciples, followers, soldiers who were willing to fight the fight and not be fearful. Fearful is one of, if you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, You can't let fear rule you. You cannot be afraid. Your fear is in the Lord, and you don't fear everything else, the enemy, the world. All right, so he was told to tell the soldiers, whosoever is fearful and afraid, this is in verse 3, I think, let him return and depart. And do you know how many left? He says, if you're afraid, and they were looking at that huge army down in the valley, and those vicious, ruthless people, pagans, and 22,000 of the men decided that, no, they, they were just too fearful to face the odds against them, even though Gideon had been told he would, he would win, the Lord would be on their side. Now, it was, so therefore it was good that Gideon, through the Lord, gave the men this option and, and warned them ahead of time about the size of the enemy because if they had gone to battle with the enemy and those 22,000 of his 32,000 got close to the enemy and saw their faces and their swords and their, you know, and, and, and got afraid and turned back and ran, what would have happened? Who would have won the battle? The Midianites would have won the battle because 22,000 of his men would probably maybe, you know, have inspired the 10,000 and they would have lost the battle and God would not have... Uh, 
his promise to Gideon wouldn't have been uh, proven true and God would not have gotten the glory. So it was good that he warned ahead of time, just like Jesus warns us ahead of time. Well, Gideon's um, men would have been very easy victims if they were thinking about their family, weren't they? Wouldn't they have been? You know, I can't, I can't go to this battle because I, my, my family, I can't leave my children as orphans and my wife is a widow. Um, I'm not willing to die myself for the cause. Or what if they thought about their memory foam comfort pillow back home and they weren't willing to give up the creature comforts or their future inheritance or whatever. And the early Christians would never have been able to take the message of salvation to a lost and pagan world if they had spent their time fearfully running away from every persecution that came their way. If Paul, for example, was so afraid that he just wouldn't go into the next town. All right, well... So the the ranks were thinned out from 32,000 down to 22,000. And then in verse 4, yeah, I'm sorry, 22 left. So from 32,000, now he's down to 10,000. Now those 10,000 passed the fearful test. They proved that they weren't fearful. Now they're going to be faced with the focus test or not don't be forgetful of your task test. So in verse 4, the Lord told Gideon um, that he still needed to thin out the ranks. Now, this is where I really would have lost it. My goodness, Lord. (laughs) And what he was supposed to do, he says, the people are yet too many. Bring them down under the water and I will try them for thee. Now, Gideon, the men were thirsty, so they went down to some pond somewhere and Gideon was to watch the men drink. And uh, those men who knelt down on their knees to get to the water or laid down flat to push their parched lips to the water proved that they were more anxious to drink the water than they were to watch for the enemy. They're down on their knees or they're flat. And, you know, they're putting their lips like, you know, like a dog lapping up the water. And this showed that they forgot their primary purpose. They forgot that they were soldiers of the the Lord. They put their physical needs above their, their task. The quenching of their thirst was more important than the cause they represented. However, there were some other men who stooped. They didn't get down on their tummy, and they didn't get on their knees. They just stooped over. Now, I can't walk away from the microphone, or this won't get, but yesterday I did. and I just showed you they got into the stooping position, and they used their hands. They cupped the water into their hands. But instead of focusing on the water, where did they keep their eyes? They kept their eyes alert. They went like this. They were stooping so they could get up in a hurry. Probably had their swords right there at their side. You see, they didn't forget their task. They remained alert to spot the enemy. They weren't going to get caught off guard. Their physical needs were met, but not at the expense of their of their mission. So God said, by the 300 men that lapped the water without kneeling, You are going to win this battle. And then Gideon was told he took the 300 men. Now the enemy was down in a valley and there was a ridge around there of mountains. And so he took his 300 men and he divided them into three companies. I imagine he put 100 men on this side of the ridge, 100 men on this side, and 100 men on that side. And he gave each man a trumpet. I don't know where he got 300 trumpets, but each man had a trumpet. And in the other hand, they had a clay pitcher, and inside, it was empty, except inside was a a light burning. And he told them, at my command, at night, they went up there on the, the mountain, the enemy was down below sleeping, and it was dark, and he said, at my command, everybody, blow your trumpet, and then break the clay pitcher, the clay vessel, and let the light inside shine forth. And they all said, what was it, Peggy? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And when they did that, the enemy was so terrified. It it describes it there somewhere. Somebody can find about the enemy, Mm, whatever verse, somebody look. But they were, here, verse 21. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the hosts ran and cried and fled. They were so scared, the Midianites and the Amalekites, because they thought the army of Gideon was much bigger than it was. Because can you imagine all these 300 men blowing their trumpets really loud? For one thing, a lot of noise sounded like a huge army. And then all of a sudden they see all these lights 
and they just and they were surrounded and they thought it was so many more men than it was that they got scared they're crying they got so scared that it says they somewhere down there it also says that they turned their swords on each other and i guess midianites were killing amalekites and then they were so confused that they fled they ran they ran away and it was like a david and goliath thing 300 men beat an army and they chased them and they they killed they killed a lot of them it says in um, the next chapter in verse 10 that i think 120,000 of them uh, were killed and the rest of them ran away with their tails tucked isn't that amazing who got the glory in all that the lord got the glory not by might nor by power but by my spirit saith the lord this is precisely what christ strove to teach those who would be his disciples when gideon's men were willing to forsake everything to fight for the cause of god their faithfulness they passed the faithful test they passed the um, the fearful test they passed the focus test and they passed the faithful test because they stood there with that army and they stood their ground and they they blew those trumpets and they broke those clay vessels um this is what enabled them to do the impossible you know when you and i are willing to not be fearful to be focused and to be faithful and to proclaim the message of the gospel gospel to blow our trumpets loud and clear to stand true to be willing to break our clay vessels and let the light within us shine forth we can do the impossible we can because it's by his power and by his strength and his his spirit gideon's men were the salt of the earth that had not lost its saltiness its usefulness and with such simple but salty men and just a handful of them the lord jesus christ men and women the lord jesus christ literally turned this world upside down and you know what he can do the same thing with you and i we just need to be committed to his cause let's pray father he that hath ears ears to hear i pray that he would hear or that she would hear this message today if there is one who has not yet embarked on the road to discipleship i pray that she would consider the cost and then be willing to surrender and say yes lord no matter what it takes i am willing and for the rest of us lord i pray that we would all be able one day to say with the apostle paul i have fought the good fight i have finished the course i have kept the faith lord jesus how we love you how we thank you that you you speak the truth in love but you don't pull any punches you tell it like it is and i know lord one day it will be worth it all to serve you thank you for the patience of your people thank you for the hunger of your people thank you for the steadfastness of your people bless them put a hedge around them protect them from the evil one and bring us all back lord safely in two weeks for we pray in your name amen